please stand uh, in honor of the reading of God's word. So we read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us consider this passage this morning. Father, we need your help to open our eyes to see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word this morning. Um, God, no doubt there is spiritual warfare happening right now. Um, Satan does not want uh, me to be clear. He does not want the message to be understood or heard. And so, Lord, we we ask right now that you would give us um, the strength to uh, put on the armor of God, that we would fight even to to pay attention, that we would fight to discern and see what you have for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that this congregation right now would um, judge the words I say by the words that we have in front of us in our own language. We thank you for our Bibles. We thank you for the Bible. And Lord, this morning we pray even now for our kids uh, in the nursery and over um, in the CE building, Lord, that they, as they hear your word and as they interact with the Bible, Lord, that they would um, be taught, that they would gain knowledge, that they would learn how to love one another well. And God, we pray that you would raise up from this church, from both the young and from the old, um, warriors to fight in this world. Lord, and we pray that you would raise us up that we might go forth and share the gospel with our friends and family, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our fellow students, or with strangers even. And that this week we might be empowered to put 1 Corinthians chapter 8 into practice. So God, we, we come to meet with you and we ask that you would meet with us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How many of you uh, have been or are Jeopardy fans? Raise your hand. Wow, look at this. Kindred spirits. Okay. Chris, did you try out for Jeopardy? Online. Anybody tried out? Anybody tried to get on the show? All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I used to love Jeopardy. haven't watched it in ages, but um, loved Jeopardy, and here's why. I love Jeopardy because I'm prideful. <laughs> 
I was like, I know, I probably know most. I could probably go on the show and win hundreds of thousands of dollars. I, these guys are morons, right, watching the show. I like to think of myself as a smart guy. I like to um, acquire knowledge. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, some of us like to acquire facts. Some of us like to uh, gather up trivia, um, some of us like to share that trivia, possibly for good reasons, possibly not so good reasons. Uh, but Jeopardy shows us um, kind of an interesting uh, collision of things that matter and things that don't, right? When, when, they, when they reveal the categories, um, usually there's one category where you think, I've got a real good chance on this one, and there are some categories that come out and you're like, nobody knows that, nobody needs to know that. Why is that category even here? Well, this morning I want to talk about knowledge, I want to talk about facts, I want to talk about trivia, and I want to talk about something better and greater than that. Because if we content ourselves with mere facts, trivia, and knowledge, um, we run the risk of becoming arrogant, not to mention annoying people. And so I want us to, to begin there and look and see where Paul takes us in this argument. Um, this, is, this is a tough passage to wade through. Um, this is probably the toughest passage I've ever had to figure out how to communicate because there's so much background material, so much archaeological work, so many things that have come up and that we can speculate about that, that might help us understand the passage. Um, so what I want us to do is to dig in, and if you're involved in a community group, we're going to dig in further this week into this passage. All right, so let's, let's dive in together. You've got some notes uh, there in your worship folder. I'd encourage you to take those out. Uh, first, just want to mention some, a few background things. And the first is that 1 Corinthians is an occasional letter. Um, that's what some scholars call it, not because he just writes occasionally, but because of what that word means. There was an occasion that brought this, uh, these things to Paul's attention. And so because of the occasion, he wrote, the letter. Something sparked his writing this letter that was more than just wanting to greet these people. Um, And we know from chapter 7 and now from chapter 8 and as we continue to go through 1 Corinthians um, that there's even an indication very explicitly that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter with some questions. Um, They they needed some answers to some questions and so a, a large reason that Paul wrote this letter is to answer the Corinthians question. This is somewhat of a Q&A letter. The problem for us is we don't have the questions. We just have the answers. And so it's like being in the room with someone who's on the, fo- on the phone. You can kind of figure out what's going on, the topic being talked about. If someone's really insistent, you might hear them blare out a sentence or a word. But what you have to rely on is what the person in the room is saying. And so... This is what we're doing this morning. We're trying to discern what Paul is on the line about. We we have his words. We're not sure exactly what the Corinthians' questions were. And so we need to go back in and look at this passage, try to understand what is going on as, as we try to close the distance between ourselves and the context of this passage. Uh, another thing that we need to talk about is the quotation marks in the ESV. If you have an ESV, look at verse 1. You'll see all of us possess knowledge in quotes. The next sentence you'll see knowledge is in quotes. If you go to verse 4, you'll see two phrases in quotation marks. And then in verse 5, you'll see two words in quotation marks. 
Some of you have other versions, you don't see any quotation marks. Or some of you have different versions that have different quotation marks in different places. And this is exactly what I was just talking about. What we are trying to do is piece together what the Corinthians were asking. And it seems to many translators that Paul is actually quoting back to the Corinthians what they had written in their letter to him. Now, we don't, we don't know, but it seems by looking at the style that Paul is incorporating and by the, even the syntax and the grammar of the sentences that Paul's repeating back words. So if you have a Bible that has phrases in quotation marks, the translators have added those in there to try to help us see what the Corinthians may have been asking. Okay, so those quotation marks are not inspired. (laughs) Those are our best guesses to help us understand what the text says. Okay, the letter, the manuscripts that we have just have words. We don't have um, quotation marks. Okay, just want to make that clear as we try to understand this passage. And then last, we just need a little bit of background on the whole topic. Food offered to idols. Uh, What's what's going on here? Most of you this week, anybody see an idol this week? An honest-to-goodness, legitimate, like, image, graven image. Okay? A few people did. Did, um, If you've been to, uh, if you had to have your car fixed in certain places in Orange County, you'll see um, some idols in the the office, maybe even with food um, being offered to a god um, or a goddess. Um, But but for the most part, not many of you raised your hands, for the most part, that's a little foreign to our way of life. The actual standing image, the actual idol. But this was the entire culture that the Corinthians and Paul were engulfed in. You remember in Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens, the the center of the thought world in the Greco-Roman times. And he goes there and he sees so many idols that his heart just burns within him. He's, He's agitated because of the amount of idols. And this was not peculiar just to Athens. Um, Corinth had many temples. And Pastor Ron's talked about this in the background of this book, especially the opening sermon of this series, which you can get online if you missed it. Um, and, and Corinth was a big city. Corinth was a metropolitan city. It was a port city. There were people coming from all different cultures. The Romans loved adding other gods in. Hey, those Egyptian gods and goddesses are kind of cool. We'll put them in here too. Let's borrow some from the east and bring them in when we conquer their lands. Let's make all the gods happy and add them to our temples. So the, the normal way of life for the Corinthians was one surrounded by temples and idols. Now, before we dismiss that as irrelevant, um, idols have morphed, <laughs> correct? Um, you may have driven in one this morning. <laughs> um, you may have eaten at one this morning. Um, idols are anything that we put in the place of needing or of being worthy of worship. And so we can make a god uh, out of basically anything. Um, we're actually very good at making a god out of ourselves. And the Bible speaks to this as well. But in this, in this part of the passage, we want to understand um, physical, standing, carved um, idols. Uh, one author said uh, that the food sacrificed to idols was so involved in the culture, it was all part and parcel of the formal etiquette in society. So that most of the meat in society actually came from temple sacrifices to pagan gods. Um, the Corinthians and the Greeks and the Romans, they didn't eat the same amount of meat that we do. Um, we are 
we, we consume more meat than basically most cultures of all time in the history of the world. And this just wasn't that normal um, to them. The, the, the fact that meat was offered um, at temples was generally sometimes a, a group thing, right? So everyone pitched in for the sacrifice, um, or it was something that more wealthy people would involve themselves in. So the lower to middle classes um, very infrequently would actually eat meat. But most of the meat available in society was from pagan temples. And so the sacrifices of the animals would provide most of the meat. Now Paul addresses this issue in Romans chapter 14 as well. So uh, later on this afternoon, um, if you've got nothing to do, or if you have something to do, there's something better to do, read Romans 14 and kind of compare what Paul had to deal with with the church at Rome and compare it to the church in Corinth. But as we talk about the food offered to idols, we also need to understand that if you had a birthday party, if you were invited to any kind of local feast, um, if you went to an anniversary, many of these were held in the temple precincts. So you would enter the temple grounds for many, many, many of these social events, of these parties. And so the lines were blurred between pagan temple worship and social parties and and it was it was hard to tell what the difference was and a lot of times the meat and the things used for the parties were leftovers from the sacrifices offered in the temple the temples were were multi-purpose rooms <laughs> they were used for various things in fact one scholar said in addition to parties temples were the restaurants of antiquity um, there wasn't a starbucks on every corner uh, there weren't fast food restaurants available the temples were the primary restaurants in the ancient world. And there's even archaeological evidence in Corinth um, of a large dining room with couches along all four walls and a table and a place to roast meat in the middle. So you would have, I, I couldn't find a good picture of this, you'd have the, the, um, the temple proper where the priests would have been involved and where sacrifices were going on and what we know from previous chapters, there was also a lot of sexual immorality involved in these temples. And, and uh, removed from that, maybe just by a room or maybe even an open archway, was your table, <laughs> was the place to eat. So when we're talking about this passage, we're talking a a mishmash of social, of religious, of um, the function of eating, all these things mishmashed together in the temple. And out of this culture, God saved pagans and Jews who are now in one church, a minority in this big city, trying to learn how to follow Jesus um, with all of this surrounding them. Um, How many of you were saved after the age of 25. God saved you after 25. Okay? Okay, a, a good chunk. I don't know, I'm going to guess like a third maybe there. Um, I'm going to guess that most of you that were saved um, at that time in your life were saved out of some things that didn't just go away right when you became a Christian. They didn't just disappear. Now sometimes that does happen. But the cultural influences, the family influences, the beliefs... Um, the, the, the way that we exist and work, um, those things don't just go away. And so we have to learn how, with our new identity as Christians, we have to learn how to function, we have to learn how to follow Jesus with this baggage, if you will. So with all that background, let's dive into point number one. Point number one, the church needs knowledge, 
but not as much as it needs love. The church needs knowledge, but not as much as it needs love. Now, if, if you know me, you know I'm not going to sit here and, and go off on people that like to read or acquire knowledge. Um, I may have a problem with that. <laughs> uh, I love to read. I love to acquire knowledge. I love, my wife um, doesn't like going to museums with me because I read every single thing, right? So we've been here for three hours. We're in the same room because I, I want to know what that is. I want to read. I want to I acquire knowledge. And I, I don't think Paul wants to disparage knowledge either. In fact, in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, we saw him contrasting wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and the proper and improper understandings of those things. And so, so Paul would never say, you know, turn your brain off. Stop thinking. What Paul is going to say is that we need knowledge, but more than we need knowledge, we need love. We need love. So, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We see a formula right at the beginning. Now concerning. If you'll look back um, at verse 25, chapter 7, you'll see the same phrase. Now concerning. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 1, you'll see the same phrase. Now concerning. If you go ahead to chapter 11, if you go ahead to chapter 12, if you go ahead to chapter 15, you will see variations on this phrase, on this formula, that is telling us, Paul is responding to an issue, responding to a question brought up by the Corinthians. And so he shifts from all this talk of singleness and marriage, of sexual immorality, of church discipline that have filled up the last three chapters, and he moves to what will now take up about three more chapters. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are kind of in an ABA format. So chapter 8, um, this week is, is A, topic A. And the topic seems to shift a little bit in the next two weeks in chapter 9, so that would be B. And then it goes back to A in chapter 10. So part of the way we interpret chapter 8 is by cheating and reading ahead and looking at chapter 10, because chapter 10 actually gives us some of the conclusions that Paul won't give us in chapter 8. So this involves study. This involves asking the Lord to give us insight. So Paul shifts to this, uh, this topic of food offered to idols. And he says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, this seems to be um, him quoting or acknowledging something that the Corinthian church would have said. The Corinthian church would have said, well, we, all of us possess knowledge. Gnosis is the Greek word. And this was a very important topic in the Greek world, to, to have this gnosis. And some groups and cults claimed to have special gnosis and later on became known as Gnostics. Um, they wrote things that the, our uh, media loves to lift up as the Gnostic Gospels. But this gnosis, this knowledge, was something that was very important to the Greeks and could easily be twisted. And Paul tells us that in the next sentence. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That, that word puffs is literally inflate. Um, and so it, it's going to inflate in the sense that, so we talk about, you know, don't get a big head. Right? Because you're arrogant, you're proud. You're, people are singing your praises and it, you let it go to your head. So this is the picture that, 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 we, that we puff up. Knowledge puffs us up. But love builds up. So right away, what Paul is doing is, is laying a foundation for how he's eventually going to answer the question. Okay, so he says, now concerning food offered to idols, and they think, okay, now he's going to answer our question. But before he does that, he, he wants to make sure 
Now, we're not missing each other here. That we're talking about the same thing in the same way. And so he wants to lay a foundation of love. Love lies at the foundation of the rest of this chapter because without love, we will see in the last few verses, destruction and sin running rampant. So knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If, if, that's, if that's all you get today, ponder that through the week. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we all know what it's like when someone else, not, not ourselves of course, someone else is puffed up and how, that, how, how we love that. We just love it when someone has a big head and they're arrogant and they like to you know, tell us everything that we don't know. No, we don't like that. That's annoying. We, that, that turns us off. We don't want to hear that. We don't, we don't want to listen to that. And so even in, even in that understanding, we know that love is actually constructive. Love is constructive. It's going to build up, edify. Verse 2, Paul continues to go on, and he humbles these Corinthians, and we need to be humbled as well. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So this, this clues us into there's a, there's a right way of knowing, and there's a wrong way of knowing. There's a proper way of knowing, and there's an improper way of knowing. Paul wants us to make sure that we understand um, what knowledge can do to us if we allow it to go its own way. So uh, one scholar said, uh, there is no point in priding oneself on what is inevitably partial and incomplete. And this is what Paul brings up. He says, if you, if you think you know something, if you think you've arrived, then you don't really know what you ought to know. You, you, you just show, um, by what you think you know, you show your ignorance. And that's a good, that's a good um, reminder for us. That's a good reminder to us that we don't know. Um, I find that my, my kids do this for me, right? Um, I, I have a master's degree. I must be smart, right? But when a four-year-old asks me a question, uh, ask your mother. <laughs> um, or I don't know about that. I'm not sure. I get stumped all the time by my kids. And that's a good reminder for us. Um, that if we think we've arrived, if we think we know it all, we do not yet know as we ought to know. We have an exaggerated self-conception, one scholar said. We think too highly of ourselves. And then Paul moves on and says something that is probably not expected. So if you were reading this, or perhaps if you were the one in the Corinthian church hearing this being read, you might kind of figure out, where Paul might be going, because the next words in verse 3 say, but if anyone loves God, he knows truly. Would that be what you think he would go? He might say something like, if anyone loves God, then he knows God rightly or truly, or he has true and right knowledge of God. But rather what he says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Um, He kind of turns the tables. Um, he makes what we wanted to be active, what do I know, what do we know, to make it passive. What does God know about us? And, and this, is, this is really important because this also humbles us. It helps us to see that the most important thing here is that we are known by God, by God's knowledge, not our own knowledge. And that our love towards God shows that God knows us. This is very um, similar to... to John's argument in his first letter, 1 John, um, John will talk about knowledge, he'll talk about love in a lot of places, and he says the reason that we love is why? Because he first loved us. 
Um, we, we see God's initiative here. The Corinthians were gifted. They were smart. Um, Paul says they had knowledge. You go back to chapter 1, verse 5. They had a lot of knowledge. They knew a lot of things. He wasn't denying that. But he, what he wanted to remind them of is that being known by God trumps filling our own heads with knowledge. Paul will say this in Galatians 4, 9. He'll say that the essence of salvation is, is actually being known by God. Being known by God is the blessing of salvation. And this just reminds us that God is in charge and we're not. That God is all-knowing and we're not. And that may seem maybe a little oversimplified, but boys, that's a helpful corrective for us sometimes. Um, we, we learn a new topic and we think that we know that topic. And then someone else brings something up about that topic that we had no idea of and we're, and we're, we're brought low. And that's, that's good. We need to be humbled before God. So, so Paul hasn't even actually talked about food offered to idols at all. He's just talked about knowledge and love um, in these first three verses. He's setting the foundation. So point number two in verses four through six is that accurate knowledge is a necessary foundation for understanding God and God's. Accurate knowledge is a necessary foundation for understanding God and God's. So Paul in verse 4, in the ESV it says, therefore, it's probably better in the NIV, so then, it's almost like he's saying, okay, so back to the whole idol business. And then once again, he takes a detour because he really doesn't answer the question. He, he again lays some foundation here. And we need to understand that even in saying this, Paul is saying we got to have accurate knowledge. We must know rightly so that we can answer this question, so that we can figure out how to love. See, if, if, if I don't know much about you, it's harder for me to love you, specifically, right? But if I know what your favorite color is, what your favorite candy bar is, what your favorite restaurant is, what I, if I know those things, then I can begin to love you um, customizably. I can begin to love you at a deeper level because I know who you are. If someone says, you know, to me, you know, do you love your wife? I say, sure, I love my wife. When's the last time you talked to her? Should we be doing that? I mean, right? Or what's your wife's favorite color? Ooh, hmm, colors. That'd probably be good to know. You're, you're kind of like, what is what's going on with this guy? How long have you been married? So, so knowledge is is intrinsic to love. Knowledge informs love. But, but love um, must be predicated on true knowledge. So, Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quoting the Corinthians, an idol has no real existence. And that, quoting the Corinthians, there is no God but one. So it seems that Paul is, is using the Corinthian quotations. Um, he's using their phrases. And he's not disagreeing with them. He seems to be tacitly agreeing with them, but, but it's not enough. It's, it's not enough to know these things. He says, okay, that's true. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. And here he begins to, to say what looks like kind of like a statement of faith or a creedal statement um, that corresponds to the Old Testament. Paul's a Jew. Paul was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. F- Paul knew the law. And so he is very likely hearkening back to Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, which Orthodox Jews then and now say twice a day. That's called the Shema. So if you've ever been to Wildwood, you need to stand up right now because we're doing this. Stand up. 
you've been to Wildwood at all, ever, if you are a Wildwood alumni, counselor, or student, I want you to stand up. Come on. Look around. All right, guys, we're going to do this, okay? Here we go. Pinkies up. We do this at uh, camp every year. Uh, we recite the Shema. You guys ready for this? <laughs> Some of you are like, how's this go? Okay, it starts with Shema. All right, ready? Here we go. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Yeah, all right, very good. Okay, that, that is something that's, that's foundational. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that, very good, guys. That's foundational to the Jewish worldview and to the Christian worldview. It says there's one God. There is one, right, there's one God. Okay? We know that. There's only one God. And that's foundational to Christianity. In fact, Psalm 115, 4 through 7 says this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Throughout the Old Testament, the psalmist and the prophets mock the, uh, the belief in these idols as being gods. Um, Isaiah takes it to the furthest extreme, is very sarcastic, says, go to the forest, chop down a tree. How are you going to decide which side is the firewood and which side is the idol? Isn't that pretty ridiculous? Like, what if you got the wrong side? What if you burned the idol? And what if the, the idol is supposed to be firewood? Right, this, is, this is ridiculous, this understanding of these many gods. Why? Because we're monotheists. There's one God. And this determines how we understand idols. So some of the Corinthians seem to be saying, well, we know there's no such thing as idols. They're just idols. Look, kick it over, right? It's just going to fall down. It's just stone. It's just wood. And so they, they knew, they had knowledge um, that, that these idols were not real. Okay? And that's going to play into verses 7 through 13. But Paul, again, takes a detour and wants to just state very clearly what Christians believe. And in verse 6, he says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Which, by the way, is humbling, right? We exist for him. Why are you here? Because God made you. <laughs> he made you for himself. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he contrasts God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ with these so-called gods and lords. And that just probably is a way of Paul kind of, in this one little phrase saying, all these other gods, all these other worship, all these other things being worshipped, whether they were um, some of the supreme gods or offspring of gods, or whether it was emperor worship or worship of magic and spirits, which was all going on in the Roman world. Whatever the case, we know that there is one God and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. And this is a necessary foundation for understanding what we're even talking about when we're talking about an idol. What is that thing in the temple? What is that thing in the repair shop? What is that thing that's in the place of worship? What is it? Well, in order to know, we must know who God is. So, setting up the foundation of verses 1 through 6, Paul has actually not answered the question still. <laughs> He's not answered it. He said, now concerning food offered to idols, and he wants us to make sure we've got this understanding. Love is more important than knowledge. 
accurate knowledge is foundational for understanding these things. And in verses 7 through 13, we begin to see what the problem was. So point number three in your notes, real knowledge really builds up brothers and sisters. Real knowledge really builds up brothers and sisters. Because in verse 7, he, he kind of goes back and kind of presses back against what the Corinthians were saying. We all possess, all of us possess knowledge. And he says, well, not all possess this knowledge, actually. And then he, he, he kind of opens it up. And now we see what's going on. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. What was happening was that some of the Corinthian believers, because of their past experience in worship, was with idols, was among idols, was saturated with idols, that's all they they grew up with idols, that because of that former association, they could not see food offered to an idol as an option for them to eat. Okay? So, it may have been a birthday party. Okay? It may have been uh, a wedding anniversary. It may have been a local feast. Where was the meat coming from? Well, the meat had been offered to an idol, very likely. Chapter 10 is going to talk more about how this worked out. But these believers were saying, well, hold, hold on a second. That, that's, that's associated with an idol. I, I can't eat that. My, my, I, I, that's wrong. I can't do that. And what we've just learned is that there's actually no such thing as an idol. There's no such thing. There's one God. But what was happening, starting in verse 7, and we'll see more as we go on, is that there were some who had a weak conscience, meaning they could not disassociate the, the purpose, others' purpose for that meat and their consumption of it. That by eating that meat, they were necessarily involving themselves in the idol worship where the meat had come from. Okay, so we'll find out in chapter 10 that there are actually meat markets. And when you go to the market, the agora, you, you go and you, you, know, you haggle and you go to the meat shop and here's the butcher and he's got meat hanging from hooks or whatever and you're trying to buy and you're trying to do all these things. Well, when you're there, you go, okay, so where's this meat coming from? Well, the assumption is that almost all of it came from one of the temples in town. So the pagan family would come and they would offer up a sacrifice for whatever, various reasons. And some of the meat would be burned. This is just like the Jews did in the Old Testament to some degree. Okay, the, some of it would be burned up as an offering. Some of it would go to feed the priests who were serving there. Okay, that was some of the way they got paid. And some of it, okay, would be sold to the meat market because there was just too much of it for the priests to eat. And some of it would be eaten by the people sacrificing sometimes. Okay, sometimes it would be you participate in it by eating it there. But there'd be leftover meat. And so it would go to the meat market and be offered, okay, you know, put the little sticker on it and you <laughs> go in and there's some meat. Where'd it come from? Well, these weak, these, these Christians, that they're not called weak yet, that have a weak conscience are actually being defiled. Their conscience is being defiled um, by participating in eating this meat. And it's really un- helpful to understand this weak and strong thing because I think we, we have in church history taken this um, out of context at times and used it in ways that are not helpful. Um, here, here's one definition of a weak conscience. A weak conscience is one that cannot come to a decision on an issue 
where an individual is uncertain of the rightness of his or her actions. Not certain. There's, there's not certainty here. So although they're saying, I can't participate in that, there's, there's some kind of wobbly going on here. Now that's complicated, okay, by what we're going to find out later. But once again, um, Paul in verse 8 is going to make some statements. Now some would see these statements as also being Corinthian quotes. The ESV translators did not. Whatever the case is, even if they are quotes, Paul's agreeing with them, I would say. Food will not commend us to God. That's exactly what Jesus said. Okay, this is exactly what Jesus said. It's not what goes in, but what comes out. Okay? Um, and Jesus there was helping to phase out the uh, Mosaic law, the rules about meat. Okay? Um, and, and in that, we see that food's not going to commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So the meat is not going to get us closer to God. It's not going to push us farther away from God. In some, case, in some ways, it's morally neutral. It's amoral. It's meat. By the way, it's meat from an animal that God made. And we know from 1 Timothy 6 that God gives us all gifts to enjoy. But what's, been hap- what's happened is this, this so-called contamination now with being offered to an idol. It's also worth pointing out that these are Gentile um, believers. This did not, was probably not much of an issue for the Jewish believers in the Corinthian church. They wouldn't have been mixed up. They didn't have former association with idols in all likelihood. And so this is mainly a Gentile issue. Verse 9 returns us here to the issue. Take care, be careful, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Take care. Just because you have this right does not mean you get to use it indiscriminately. Just because we can does not mean that we should. Right? Um, Think about if you... I know all my illustrations are little kids because I have them. Think about if you have little kids in the house and mom and dad want to watch a movie after kids go to bed. Um, We can watch this movie. But we have little kids in the house. Should we watch this movie? This This is something that we can do. We can do this, but should we do this? Those are different questions. Can we do this? Should we do this? Paul seems to agree that the meat issue is morally neutral. However, he begins to go after the recklessly uncaring, insensitive approach of the strong toward the weak. Take care. And we know that, that Jesus had something to say about stumbling blocks. And stumbling block may seem like he's in like a little pedal, like, ooh, trip. But a stumbling block was, was a large thing in the road. It, it, was going to, it was going to slow you down. Or sometimes it was used in military endeavors. If we we're being chased by an army, we're going to leave stuff in the road, right? To slow down the army. So it's a stumbling block, something that's going to, that's going to hurt Something that's going to cause distraction. Okay, and later as we find out, possibly destruction. Jesus did not um, approve of placing stumbling blocks before our brothers and sisters. In Luke, he does say with little children, if you lead these ones astray, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the middle of the sea. Now that's... No one said that to me this week, right? Like, no one said that. You know what? It would have been better if you'd been thrown in the middle of the sea with a millstone around your neck. Whoa. 
That is serious stuff. So Jesus is not taking this lightly. Um, this is uh, in Israel. Um, that's our guide, Ronan. Um, I'm standing on the left behind a millstone that's being used to crush um, olives. It could be used to crush grapes. You put them in there and you'd roll that thing around. Now, you could have people that push that around or you could have an animal hooked up to that. That is what Jesus says should be tied around your neck so that you, when you're thrown in the middle of the sea, you ain't coming up. So, so this, this, this shows the, the seriousness to which Jesus pointed out, don't make brothers and sisters stumble. This is a huge, weighty issue. As he moves on into verse 10, we see the primary issues now take shape. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating, um, that, that's literally reclining at table, because the way they ate, they didn't push their chairs in and sit and you know, do this. They, they laid on couches, which I think is a fantastic idea. We should totally do this. Okay? But they laid on couches and had a low-lying table just right off the floor and that they ate from. Okay, um, so they're they're literally reclining at table. This is not the the this is not sitting at the bar. This is not the, like the counter, like quick throw it down and run. You got to go somewhere. This is like come on in. This is an experiential dinner. Okay, so if if one of these if one of these weak conscience that's not even a word if one of these who's weak who has a weak conscience um, sees one of these people eating in an idol's temple. Just chilling, dipping some in, talking, hanging out, laying down, really involved in this. In an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? That's, that's the word for uh, edified, built up. Will he not be built up? Okay, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And this is really interesting because Paul is saying love edifies, but this is the wrong kind of edification. This is the wrong kind of building up. You don't want to build someone up to do something that's going to violate their conscience. Don't do that. Stay away from that option. So, so we, can, we can get into application, and we will in a little bit, but does this mean that we, that we have to pay attention to what's bothering our weaker brothers and sisters? Yes. Yes, it does. What would that look like? I think it would look a lot like Luke 9.23. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny who? himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is a call for the family of God to care about each other. To care about brothers and sisters. That we would watch out for one another. That we would be careful what we're doing. Now, you can flip over, or maybe it's on the same page. Um, chapter 10, Paul's going to address this issue again. Um, and he seems to say in chapter 10, verse uh, 20, well, back up to 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It seems that the issue is actually going to the temple where the idols are and participating in a meal there. Because chapter 10 is going to talk about the meat that's in the market. And actually in chapter 10, Paul's going to say, hey, listen, if you're, if you're in the market or if you're at somebody's house and there's meat, you don't need to go, wait, hold on a second. Was this offered to an idol? Just eat it. It's meat. It's good for you. 
take it, okay? Have the meat. But the, but the big issue here is, what if you're seen in the temple, in the place of worship, eating the meat? Well, what's going to happen there? Because the association is so strong. The priests are doing their thing. The, the priestesses are doing their thing in some precinct of those temples. Um, sacrifices are being offered. And, and here's a guy in the room next door, just hanging out and eating. What, what, what's the issue? Well, well, the issue is that if the weaker brother sees, will he not be built up? Hey, I can do that too. So-and-so's doing that. And they're a member of the church. And I, all right. While inside, they're, they're, they're doing the wobble. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. I don't know. Should I do this? I don't know. They, well, they're doing it. The danger here is palpable. Look at um, verse 11. This is how serious this is to Paul. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. How important is this person? Jesus died for them. That's how important this person is. And if your knowledge, right? You, oh, you elevated one who has reached this this upper echelon of knowledge, if by that knowledge you're destroying your brother, this is serious, serious business. Now, I, I, don't, I don't tend to think that when it says destroyed here that it means um, like, uh, like they're going to be condemned to hell, they're going to lose their salvation. Um, some versions say ruined. Um, I, I think that this, that this is a devastating step backward in someone's sanctification. Um, I don't think this is a literal destruction, but, but I think the word is used to show how serious the issue is. Okay? Um, Jesus died for this brother. Okay? So, so die to your rights. <laughs> die to your preferences. Die to your freedoms. Die to your liberty. One of, the, one of the authors said, one response to these people in person, Paul could have said, hey, Christ died for this person. You can't even change your diet. Like, you can't even order something different off the menu. Verse 12. It gets even worse. Thus, sinning against your brothers, which would include brothers and sisters, and wounding their conscience. That word for wounding is striking, like hitting. Like their conscience is some kind of bag and you're hitting it. Um, if you if you wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. This is just what Jesus told Paul on the road to Damascus, or Saul, on the road to Damascus, right? He said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Well, hold on, Jesus was in heaven. Jesus so identifies with the church, right? It's his body. He so identifies with the church that when the church is persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. When we sin against our brothers and sisters in this way, we sin against Christ. This is... A huge issue. We wound the weak. We kick them while they're down. This is not the way that we were treated. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So Jesus' attitude towards the weak is, I'll die for them. The stronger brother's attitude was, what's wrong with them? Get up here with us. Come on. Get over it. It's not that big a deal. Verse 13 is Paul's radical conclusion. Paul's radical conclusion. 
at the end of this argument that started with love and knowledge, he says, therefore, if food, and by the way, this is a very general word. He hasn't used this word yet. If, if, if meat, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So, so he seems to be talking about an issue going on in the temple, but here Paul's going to back up so far and say, I won't even eat meat again. Some of your versions say, I will never eat meat again. Um, in the Greek, it's more like, I will never ever eat meat. Um, it's over and above. So he says, in order to avoid making my brother stumble, I, I will become a vegetarian. I don't like the sound of that because I like meat. Now, perhaps in our culture, that's not going to be necessary the way the things are. But are you willing to give up something you love, you enjoy, you like, if it's going to mean saving your brother or sister from destruction? If it's going to keep you from sinning against Christ? What are you really more concerned about? You're more concerned about what you can do or go back up to verse 3. Are you more concerned about being known by God? And because you're known by God, you love Him. Well, how do we apply this? This is tough. How do we, how do we apply these things? Because this has been, uh, this has been abused. So I, th- I think what we ought to do is we ought to, we ought to see that what was going on here was, was what we call a, a gray issue, right? It does not seem to be as black and white in the mind of Paul or the Corinthians. There was no black and white on sexual immorality in chapter 5 and 6. Don't do that. Kick that man out of the church. Get him out of there so that he'll learn how serious this is. This seems to be a a gray issue, which is why it's going to take him verse upon verse upon verse to get through it. So what we have to do, as best we can, is find analogies. So this is not merely someone who's offended by something that I do. It's someone who is on the verge of being destroyed because of what I do. We have to find those analogies. In fact, some of us don't have to find analogies. Our Korean brothers and sisters, and I, I imagine other Asian cultures as well, deal with this very issue where there are meals venerating ancestors. Do we participate in this? Um, that, that's very real for um, some of our Asian brothers and sisters, our African brothers and sisters, some places in South America where this is a very real issue. And by the way, those people are coming here, right? Everyone is coming to us. So these issues are real. Uh, but I think two things that are helpful. We need to avoid on the one side separatism. right? Staying so far away from the world that the world never sees us, that, that we're not an influence, we're not salt and light. We can't, we can't separate ourselves so far that we're in monasteries and enclaves far, far away and not reaching the world with the good news. But on the other hand, we have to avoid syncretism. Well, you know, I guess we can incorporate that into Christianity somehow, or we can, it's kind of like the Lord's Supper, or it's kind of like baptism, or it's kind of like the Trinity, or... And then we just begin to, to, to mix and mash these different beliefs. We also need to avoid legalism. Jesus is not, is not, um, he doesn't have good words to say to legalists in the Gospels. Okay, but he's also not gonna let license go either. Free, I'm free to do whatever I want. We know that's not freedom. Right, you're not gonna tell the cop, I, I'm free to go 120 miles per hour. This is America! Say, well, sorry, sir, but turn around. <laughs> you have the right to remain silent. <laughs> you can't do that. That's, we don't, we don't, that's not how we view or understand true 
liberty. So the weaker brother is not just the one who gets offended. He's the one who's, who's likely to follow a stronger brother into something morally neutral that he will then feel guilty about or feel like he's sinned in. So there is application for drinking alcohol, for smoking, for gambling, for, for media choices, for clothing choices, um, for, for many of these things in our culture. And, and the, the overarching issue here is we must take one another into account. We don't just live to ourselves. In fact, we exist for God, this chapter tells us. We must take our brothers and sisters into account. No man is an island. Right? You inevitably affect brothers and sisters around you. That's how it happens in a family. Right? Someone's in a bad mood and the whole family's in a bad mood. Why? I don't know, because that guy's in a bad mood. Right? These things spread and so does sin. So we need to be very, very careful. Are Are you free? Are you free? Do you have liberty? True freedom frees us to please God. True freedom frees us to please God. So some this morning, you you may not feel free. Um, John 8 tells us that the truth will set us free. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So the question this morning for some of us may be backtracking all the way to, do you know the truth? Not merely do you know facts, but do you know the capital T, truth, the way, the truth, and the life? If you don't, then you're enslaved and trapped in Satan's lies. And this morning... All of us who are believers, who have been freed, who have been given liberty, we want to talk to you about this. So if you feel trapped, our, our culture would say addicted, if you feel stuck, if you, if you feel confused, please, please find me or, or someone in the church that you can talk to that will listen to you and talk to you about these things. Because there is, there is good news. There is freedom and there is, there is the Spirit from God to empower us to live in such a way. So, as we go today, we need to figure out in our families, in our workplaces, in our lives, how we can best elevate love over mere knowledge and figure out how to take our brothers and sisters into consideration as we live life together. And, and Paul's going to elaborate on this in the next few chapters here. So we'll continue to kind of take this out and see what the implications are. But now we need to pray. Lord, we... We're so thankful that you've freed us. We're so thankful you've given us freedom. Pray that even now as we go, we might discuss this and talk about this, that lunch conversations would happen where we wrestle with how to put this into practice. Lord, I pray that we would would do what it takes so that we cannot, so we can keep from destroying one another. That we would learn how not to sin against you and your Son who shed His blood for our brothers and sisters. God, help us to remember that knowledge is good, love is better. In fact, help us to use our knowledge in order to love better. Lord, we know that our knowledge is incomplete, and and someday we'll see you face to face, and then um, we'll know as we're now fully known. And we long for that day. And as we await that day, help us to live this life that you've given to us, that we would be on mission, that we'd stay on mission, that we would remember the objective and that we would be focused on it. That as we we go to make disciples of all nations, Lord, that we would 
teach those who are being made disciples um, how to keep your commands and how to live lives in accordance with your word. And Lord, help us to, to consider how to do this, even in the gray areas and the messiness of life. Help us to take each other into consideration. In Jesus' name, amen.